Should we clap? Yeah, on three. All right. One, two, three. All right. Welcome to the very first episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hi! So, this is a bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures that excelled in their respective fields in arts and sciences. So today we're going to explore Paleolithic sexism and who really sold seashells by the seashore. Should we introduce ourselves? Yeah, so I'm the artsy one. My name is Megan. Um, I went to school for art. When I was little, I always wanted to be an artist. And now I pay my student loans uh, to prove that I'm an artist, because that's how it works. (laughs) awesome and I guess I'm the science side um I'm a vet tech so I do more biological stuff but uh, a lot of my family uh I kind of grew up with a sciencey background I have a biochemist for a grandfather I have a nuclear engineer for a father um so that kind of stuff followed me around growing up and I guess that's what makes me on this end (laughs) And Milana is someone you do not want to make mad because she will express your anal glands. Oh, my Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's I haven't true. seen it, but and I never want to see it, but that is something <laughs> she's fully capable of doing. Look, it's not my fault. These dogs need their anal glands expressed. They can't do it themselves. They get all stopped up. It's not pretty. <laughs> such a poor design of biology. What cruel God did that? Um, not God. Humans. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> hit the reset button. We don't need purebreds, guys. Anyway, that's oh not what goodness. this is about. <laughs> so essentially, that's what makes us us. And we wanted to create this particular podcast as kind of like a history class about the people you never heard of or never learned of in history class. The women and sometimes even the men who... Yeah, but there's a few. There are a few, yeah, that they lend themselves to the progression of women in, you know, what they love and in their careers and just essentially what they gave to their own community that we never really see or recognize. So that's what this is all about. Uh, So today we're going to go way back in time to prehistoric eras. So that's exciting. Yeah, no, so, I mean, before we're going back in time, I mean, we're making a little uh, pit stop in the 1800s, right? Yes. Okay. So, Mary Anning is actually crowned the Princess of Paleontology. She was born May 21st, 1799, so she's a fellow Taurus. Oh, okay. All right, that's what's up. (laughs) So she was born in Lyme Regis, to a Richard and a Mary Anning. They had <laughs> this is this is the kind of life she she had growing up, so I'm just gonna set this set the scene or the tone. Um, when she was a baby, the person holding her got struck by lightning and that person died. Oh my goodness. So like baby baby. <laughs> so not not funny, but that kind of set the tone for her entire life. Um, I imagine, like, no one wanted to hold that child after that. No. (laughs) They're like, no, No. she's fine. Like, she's good. (laughs) She's in the basket. She's all right. She can stay there. We'll just carry her in a little pram, make sure that it's not metal, make sure that it's plastic. (laughs) (laughs) Everything will be fine. So her parents had about 10 children. Only two of them survived. And it was her and her older brother, 
Joseph. They're about three to four mm-hmm. years apart. And uh, dad was a cabinet maker and sold fossils on the side. So he called what he sold to people curiosities. He would sell them to like collectors, like fossil collectors, and he would even sometimes sell them to like tourists. Um, mm-hmm. And he would go about finding them on the coast of Lyme Regis. What it is, is it's on the Jurassic Coast and it is a World Heritage Site on the English Channel. Uh, so a World Heritage Site is essentially a landmark or an area which is selected by the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization as having cultural, historical, scientific, or other form of significance and is legally protected by international treaties. So the site spans 185 million years of geological history Uh, Coastal erosion has exposed a sequence of rock formation covering the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods. Uh, Okay. So, essentially, Richard the dad, he's going around, he's looking for fossils. Sometimes he'll bring his son, sometimes he'll bring Mary. Um, But he, at one point, had a serious fall off the cliffs. And uh, so it's like... It's a super dangerous area. So landslips and rock falls are like a normal thing there. That and tuberculosis eventually kills the dad. Oh, oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Um, so just just all sorts of like health issues that were surrounded with this particular, I guess, hobby of his or like second form of income of his. Just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, you got to hustle. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, when he died, he left his family in debt. So Mary was 10 or 11 at that time. So, you know, Mary and her family, they're poor, and she and her brother decide to use the fossil finding skills they learned from their dad to start making money of their own. Um, so this 11-year-old girl in a petticoat is exploring the same cliffs that essentially killed her father. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, she and her brother find something. Uh, her brother is about 16, and Mary is 12. Her brother essentially finds the skull of an ichthyosaur, and a few months later, she finds the rest of the skeleton. So, what is an ichthyosaur? I'm probably butchering that. It's That's fine. okay. I don't know the difference. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to think what I, what I was doing when I was 12, and it was not exploring and finding dinosaur fossils. It was a lot of journal writing. I'm sure a lot of like a I'm lot. Sure a lot of now cringy journal writing. I I still have them. I never open them because I'm afraid of what's in there, but they're they're in my room, <laughs> and I look at them sometimes because you can see them from like where my bed like my bed is. Yeah. I don't like put them anywhere, and I'm like, oh, I see that pink notebook. You gotta burn <laughs> it. Have a ceremonial. I see you. Burn it all. <laughs> So an ichthyosaur, I'm sure I'm totally, I I really don't even know how to pronounce this, but it belongs to the order of taxonomy known as ichthyosauria, roughly translates to fish reptile. So a quick note on taxonomy, it is how living things are identified and classified. There's actually a science about it, around it. Um, So there are multiple levels to taxonomy. Order, what the ichthyosaur is, is the fourth level from the bottom. Uh, so the higher up on the totem pole, the broader the characteristics get. There's a modern-day example, dogs. So lupus is the species name. Uh, you hear Canis lupus and think, oh, that's a dog. Like, if you know the species name, 
you know exactly what animal is being talked about. You go up three notches and you're given the order name for a dog, which is carnivora. And it translates to meat eater, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, So suddenly you can be talking about one of 280 species of mammals, which includes like bears and elephant seals along with dogs. So you're like, okay, what animal am I talking about? What's going on there? So that's, that's kind of like how broad ichthyosaur can be. So there are a bunch of variations, and they're essentially mar- like large marine reptiles. They lived mostly through the Mesozoic era, which uh, they like showed up about 250 million years ago, survived into the late Cretaceous era, so about 90 million years ago. And that's a long time for them to have been around. Earlier skeletons looked more like fish, and then they later developed into, or evolved, to resemble dolphins. They can be about over 16 meters in length. Okay, so, so that's that's a really big dolphin then. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to want to swim with that flipper. <laughs> I mean, I'd want to cuddle it, but that's just because I love all animals. It's fine. It would crush you. Um. <laughs> like, you would essentially just no, be fine. a little barnacle on this, like, 16 meter long ancient dolphin. Maybe you're just swimming with a giant whale. It's okay. It's okay. I don't know. I'm not sold. I would not pay for that cruise excursion (laughs) at all. (laughs) I mean, the biggest points about the ichthyosaur is they lived in water and they had flippers. So people actually knew they existed before Mary Anning and her brother found the the skeleton. Uh, But the one that the siblings found was the first complete skeleton. They sold it to a collector for 23 pounds, which I converted it into dollar signs for today's standards. Okay, for inflation. And that's 2000... What's yeah, up? Yeah, for inflation. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's it roughly translates to about $2,072.10 today. Then it was later lent to the London Museum of Natural History, um, and then the museum closed down. But they didn't, like, it didn't go back to the collector that they sold it yeah. to. It just is now in the British Museum. Oh. Or, no, it's in the Natural History Museum. It was sold to the British Museum, and now it's in the History Museum. Wow. Um, and I wrote down the specific species. I don't know if I can say this. That's okay, because I'm probably not going to retain that at all. <laughs> it's, it's called the Temnodontosaurus platyodon. I don't know. Oh, there's a picture. I'll, I'll okay. share it. Yeah. It'll go on yeah, the we'll website. Yeah, we'll have that in the episode show notes. So the find was published in a journal called Philosophical Transactions by Everett Home in 1814. Uh, the article was called Some Account of the Fossil Remains of an Animal More Nearly Allied to the Fishes Than Any Other Classes of Animals. So I found it on biodiversitylibrary.org. If you ever wanted to go up there and look up some old stuff, um, there's a link that I will put there as well. Okay. And then I essentially scrolled through the entire document until I found, uh, like, the article. Because the document was the entire journal, and there was one article that was, like, was written specifically by him about yeah. this fossil. Uh-huh. Um, and then word for word... Um, Straight out of it, it says, The specimen was found upon an estate of Henry Host Henley Esquire between Lyme and Charmouth in Dorsetshire. So there's your Dorsetshire. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, We're on the coast. Yeah. 
<laughs> in a cliff 30 or 40 feet above the level of seashore. It had been thrown down by the breaking off of a part of the cliff and buried in the sand upon the shore to the depth of nearly two feet. The skull was dug in 18 or dug out in 1812, the other parts in the following year, at a distance of some feet. So, mention of the collector, or no, the estate holder that was like ripped out of, and zero mention of the Anning, either, either Annings. Um, but I guess that might just be because they were like 14 and 12. Yeah, easy to kind of yeah. dismiss kids. Yeah, like, oh, it's fine. They're not important. Yeah. Um, so he goes on to essentially, as, as much as he could, because in the time period, you don't talk about evolution. You don't talk about there being any scientific evidence of that. God created everyone and everything. What are you talking about? Um, so he kind of mentioned as much as he could, basically saying that this fossil lent itself to uh, evolution, that it's, it had evolved from fish and will eventually get closer to animal, um, which is a huge, huge deal when you're talking about fossils and you're talking about paleontology, like that's a big one, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not um, familiar with that period at all for that um, kind of slice of science history. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got nothing to put it in context to. No, I mean, like, anything that it lends itself to the idea of evolution, I think, is, is a solid piece, like a solid, like, here, look at this thing. Um, but she never got the recognition. Her brother never got the recognition. It was all just like... I'm stealing this, and we're going from there. And that is a the first in a long line of kind of the theme of her life. Uh, just her work was never really... Uh, she was more like a novelty to most other paleontologists, I think. Okay. Um, I mean, her just yeah, cause being she... a woman or maybe not having like a formal education in that? Oh, no, no. No, 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 no. She definitely did not have a formal education, and I'll go... I'm actually going to go over that in okay. a second. Okay, all right, great. Um, yeah. So, let's see. Her brother, afterwards, gives up fossil finding. He's got an apprenticeship with an upholsterer. He's going to start making, uh, I guess, couches. I don't know. I don't know what he made. I mean... <laughs> but he was... Making his own trade, which is an amazing, like, it's still amazing that he did that. But she was like, eh, I don't need another trade for yeah, myself. I mean, I'm just going to keep doing like, this. Like, who needs job security? Or, like, yeah, benefits okay. or anything? 401k? I don't need that. <laughs> I don't need that now. Nope. So she finds a bunch of other ichthyosaur fossils. She's not finding anything big. Uh, so her family just starts selling furniture. Um, and then... I actually found another journal. So this journal essentially goes, By 1820, Mary had found nothing of any significance for almost a year. The family started selling the furniture to pay the rent. A local naturalist by the name of Thomas Birch was appalled. He decided to help the Annings. Birch had an excellent collection of fossils. The Annings had sold him most of his best specimens. He auctioned these in London, where he knew he would get top prices. He used the money to make the Anning family's finances secure, Lyme Regis's 
Scandalmongers said he did this because he was attracted to Mary, who was now 21 years old, but there is no evidence for this. It was probably a straightforward act of generosity. I mean, which I don't know. She's like prime marrying age. <laughs> talking like early Oh, she might century. even be too old for that, honestly. 21 years she old. She should already have like three probably, babies at that point. Right. I don't know. Like, I feel like sure it could have been, but more like more likely he was he was trying to get in good with with Mary. I think that's what I'm feeling. Yeah, because maybe could he be was wrong. crushing a little bit. I mean, we'll never know. Just a little bit. <laughs> um. So back to that education. She didn't. Really, the only form of formal education she had in her life was growing up in Sunday school. They taught her how to read and how to write, but any scientific anything she had to teach herself. So what she did was she would grab journals written by scientists and naturalists and study them, extensively learning the jargon. She even taught herself a little bit of French by reading works by a guy named... I I can't, I can't, I can't do French. Jorge Cuvier... I'm going to call him Cuvier. So you're going to remember that butchered name because it gets real important in like a second. Okay. okay? She starts to become known in the paleontology field and she attends seminars as like this amateur. But uh, like she seemed to know what she was doing. So people were like, sure, come on in. And then her notoriety and her reliability like grew and then she becomes part of the community. Um, And she's just not really paid well. In 1823, she stumbles upon the very first discovery of a complete pleosaurus skeleton. Uh, the first discovery of one, and it's a complete one. Okay, and this so, is our giant dolphin. No. So the one, the first one she found was the giant dolphin. Okay. Okay. So the pleosaurus is the same level of classification in taxonomy as an ichthyosaur. So still four notches up in that totem pole. So there are a bunch of versions of these guys as well as the guys that fall under the ichthyosaur. Okay. 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 So the pleosaur translates to near reptile. And they first appeared in the Triassic period about 203 million years ago. So most common, I think they're most common in the Jurassic period um, and they were in every ocean in the world. They have the same length range as the ichthyosaur, so about 16 meters long. Uh, their characteristics include a broad, flat body, a short tail, flippers, and they could have one of two kinds of necks. So one variation is the shorter with a big head. Uh, and then the one Mary found was the second variation. It had a long neck and a tiny head. Okay. Right. And this neck was, you know, it was super long. And that becomes important in a second. So her find blows up and word gets to a guy named William Coney Bear, uh, who earlier had speculated in previous articles that there was a second kind of animal in the seas that rivaled the ichthyosaur. Uh, he even, like, pre-named it in an earlier article that he wrote what? because he found, like, yeah, no, he, he straight up was like, I know. Oh, yeah. By the <laughs> way, crazy. everyone, we do curse a little bit. Sorry, moms. Um, <laughs> Hi, Mom. I really just started it. Well, yeah, no, I just started this podcast, roped Milena in, because I just want to say fuck and be recorded. So, 
everybody will hear us and our vulgarities. I know. I it's know fun. Who we are. All right. So yeah. So okay. He was very presumptuous uh, and or confident yeah. in himself. Yeah. No. He found a few scattered bones, like like flat bones here and there that weren't part of the ichthyosaur yeah. when he was looking at like like sites, I guess. And people like dismissed them and assumed they were part of the ichthyosaur. Uh, he named it, even though there was like one bone, that, and that was it. Um, what, like, like some extra ones so he, floating around? I, I guess, yeah. I guess there was just one that was found in a site, and they're like, "Well, this doesn't belong here. This could be from some other. I mean, it could be from another animal." But he just didn't like, like, what makes you think that there's something like the ichthyosaur out in yeah. the world with just one bone? I don't know. I imagine it there was, like, an Ikea dresser that they were putting together. And at the end, they just had some <laughs> extra bones. And they're like, yeah, no, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's from the skeleton. Don't worry. We just, like, I don't know. You know, my the Allen wrench, I just got a little sore with it. I must have missed something. That's all right. We're cool. We're good. <laughs> it's yeah. all good. Just throw it yeah, over your shoulder. Fine. Don't we don't worry. need that. Yeah. I mean, like, and then it's like, wait, what do you mean there was another dresser? <laughs> I got the six door. Are you telling me there's a three door model? Oh my god! All right. I mean, kudos for him for having that foresight. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's great. And he actually becomes like he he becomes like a spokesperson for Marianne later on. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. So I I, re- I really do love him. Um, people again, they just dismissed it and uh. Let's see. He writes to a friend named Henry de la Bitch about it, about Mary Annie. Okay. And he names her in the letter. He, like, gives her credit. Nice. Yeah. No, like, this guy is like, no, no, bitches, listen. Like, she's got something. She's on to something. Um, so the find that she has, it gets to France, and it goes straight to the guy from earlier, Cuvier. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, and he is well-renowned in the paleontology field. He goes, nah, that's not real. Uh, he discredits her find. His reasoning with, was that there were too many vertebrae in the neck for it to be real. So there were 35 vertebrae, and he was like, yo, most reptiles, they have three to eight. I don't, I don't buy it. It's tampered with. Um, and because he was so well-known and good at what he did... Yeah. Uh, no one really questioned it, and Mary's name starts going down. So, Coney Bear, the one mm-hmm. we like, he saw the drawing, and he noticed that, um, like, some of those pieces were, like, matched the flat bones that he found beforehand. Um, so he convinced Cuvier to take another look at the findings, and that's when Cuvier goes, oh, my bad, it's real. Oh, <laughs> LOL, never mind. <laughs> Whoopsie. My <laughs> like- bad. <laughs> like, like, oh, wait, maybe, maybe it is real. Okay, whatever. Um, so the specific species name was the Pleosaurus microcephalus. Um, he, essentially, it was named by a guy whose name was William Buckland and described it in an article in 1840. And there were just, like, a lot of names thrown around. But essentially, the the, like article only mentions the gentleman who purchased the fossil 
and allowed the examination of it, but never mentions Anning. Okay, yeah. So, like, dismissing her again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, we're starting to see a little little bit of a pattern yeah. here. Uh, she, after that, makes countless of contributions to her field of paleontology. She found, like, another, or no, she found something called a pterosaur, called a dimorphodon mac- macriox? I don't know. I don't. Essentially, it was a it was winged with a toucan like head. So think of like a pterodactyl with a giant beak. Pterodactyl. Okay. Giant beak. Pterodactyl. What the heck? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The joys about. of editing. Okay. The joys yeah. of editing. I might leave that in. Uh, <laughs> so afterwards, she finds a shark ray hybrid called the Squaloraha, and then she finds. The second kind of Pleosaurus, so the one with the short neck and the big head. Uh, and then she, I think, I think this one's really cool. She analyzed fossilized feces to find out what the creatures actually ate. Like she documented these, like, fossilized diets because it was it was in the poop. Fair. So she'd be like, oh. There What's is up? a term, it's a very fancy one, for fossilized poo. And for the love of God, I do not remember it right now. Caprolite. Caprolite? Is it? Caprolite. Yeah. C-O-P-R-O-L-I-T-E. And I just, I just clicked on the images in Google Images. <laughs> Oh, oh, man, I don't know what I thought fossilized fossilized poop would look like. It should have been this. (laughs) Oh, my God. This makes me laugh. Um, We're not going to put that on the show notes, I promise. I've never looked at pictures of fossilized poo, (laughs) so I have no idea what you're looking at right now. Oh, my God. Um, that's pretty great. You're gonna have to Google image it later. Um, but it looks, yeah, just like poop. Honestly, I don't know why I thought caprolite sounded like it was like it would look different. No, it's it's just poop. yeah. But I mean, for dogs or um, poop, so is it like like as big as my dog? Like, are we talking about twenty pounds of like fossilized dinosaur poo? Oh my god, twenty pounds! It could have been the fifty-two pounds, like my dog. Yeah, because, I, I mean, I imagine there's some really big piles of dinosaur poo out there in the world. <laughs> there was nothing to scale next to them, which I, I'm fully disappointed in that. I'll have to look more okay. into that. Um, but the importance of that specifically um, was she went into this straight in and started picking out, like, plants and nuts and bones of other animals, like, was this dinosaur a, like, carnivore? Was it an omnivore? Like, what did it live on? And, like, that's pretty important in, like, the animal science yeah, field. Yeah, yeah, kind of establishing kind of, like, baseline. take a picture of the lives that they lived, essentially. And I can't, I don't know if anybody else was going through it, but she was. She definitely was. And I commend her for that because that's... To me, that's cool. Like, I'm going to get dirty. I'm going to do this thing. 
and nobody else was going through it, so. <laughs> um, I mean, like, yeah, she's hustling, but there were some issues. Uh, some things happened. So, when she was 14, she found a dead body. Wait, I'm sorry. Okay, so... We've just established, what, like, maybe about two decades so far of, like, her scientific discoveries and her influence with, like, collectors <laughs> and, like, the <laughs> oncoming influence she has in the paleontology world and, like, overall the development of, like, prehistoric creatures off of, like, the English coast. And uh, you're just going to casually be like, hey, by the way, that one time when she was a child, she found a dead body. <laughs> she I mean, like, <laughs> should she just look at it and she's like, that is not what I'm looking for and keep going? Like, <laughs> no. Did she just stop? No, no, and no, be no, like, no, well, no. There goes my fossil hunting. I'm going to have to go into the village. I'm going to have to get the sheriff. Ah, <laughs> oh, this is such an inconvenience. I mean, <laughs> she was, I mean, she was. She was looking for dead things. She was not expecting a dead human. That's that's all. No, I'm I mean I, that's just two very different types of dead things. <laughs> so I mean, so she's this is the kind of person she was. She um, when the body went into the like this like the village or like where they were, yeah. like they couldn't find the family members of this body very quickly. Okay. Um. So she would place flowers on the body every day, like, go visit this body until relatives claimed it. Wait, what? Yeah. So she would... How is that for some she's poor like, policing? So she hikes into the village after she has to stop her fossil I, hunting. She's like, you will I not know, believe man. what happened. This is horrible. And they're like, oh, hey, we'll ask around. Don't worry. Could you just, like, leave it there for us? No, no, no. I think it went into the body, but I think she went to go, like, visit to see if somebody had found, like, she would, I guess, the town morgue and be like, flowers for this body I found. Oh, so they, like... Yeah. They took the body, and she she was yeah. offering, you know, kind of uh, um, her sentiments to it. It's probably not the... Yeah, her response Yeah, yeah, that was not the best yeah. word for it, but um, while it was... Presumably within the village. Yes. We're going to assume that they pulled the body off the the coast of Lyme Regis and were trying to find its relatives. Okay. And she would, yeah. So she, that was her thing where she just wanted to go. I, think, I mean, she was, she was a good Christian woman. She was very, like, I don't know, I can't explain it, but she, everything that she did was, like, to be a good person and to make kind of contributions in her own way, which is why she continued. I mean, yes, she wanted money, but also, like, she could have, like, made furniture with her brother. Uh, you know what I mean? This is what she loved. I don't know about that trade organization so? really being open to women at that time, but, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's clothes. usually, like, carpentry, blacksmithing, that stuff, they, uh... Those guilds were usually not That's too fair. keen to take on women. What I'm saying is that she could have had a, like, typical woman's job. And she just decided that this was how she was going to spend yeah, her time. Yeah, no, she's, she's definitely she hustling. Loved, yeah, she loved what she did. She loved 
her, like, her, what's the word I'm like, her discoveries. And I commend her for that because that's pretty freaking awesome. I really like her. Um, I, I mean, by, like, the, so the she, end of her life, did she, um, did she gain any type of, like, regional, national recognition at all? Oh, yeah. So she essentially, after a while, so she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and then the society that she was in, which was called the Geological Society, they heard about the cancer and they actually started a fund to help her pay for her treatment, okay. which was really cool. Um, and then, unfortunately, like, the treatment didn't, like, it eventually, like, took her life. She was about 47. And then the Geological Society actually paid for, like, a stained glass window. Yeah. Uh, that was, like, for her, dedicated to her, and placed in her church, the one that she went to when she was alive. Yeah. Um, so that was probably the sweetest thing people have done for her in her life, or just her in mm-hmm. general, which I thought was really nice. Um, and then there was a song, or, like, a poem written about her. Uh, so, sea, sorry, She Sells Seashells by the Seashore by a Terry Sullivan. So when people think of that, like, that tongue twister, Mm -hmm. it's actually about her and nobody really knows. You know. Man, that's, like, that's super sad. Yeah. Yeah, that just makes that little little super depressing now. Yeah. I think think that's why we, we decided to do this podcast. I mean, I think it's great, even though she obviously did not get the full recognition and appreciation she needed and deserved in her life, that, like you said, she still kept going with it. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. Like, she probably could have, uh, you know, kind of switched gears and done, like, a more traditional career path, um, you know, working in domestic service or, um, you know, manual labor. Like, I'm sure there was other more financially stable thing she could have gone into but yeah she she really pursued what she loved so yeah uh that was my inspirational do what you love story uh megan what do you got for us all right so i've got a whole slew of some really depressing facts about women's uh kind of representation in the current art world um but before (laughs) we can put any of that into context um, we are going all the way back in time to the Paleolithic Age. Do you know that much about the Stone Age at all? I feel Aside like... Aside from stone was used for tools? No no dinosaurs. No dinosaurs, yes. Yeah, we, I know you mentioned that earlier. Um, no. No <laughs> dinosaurs are involved in the making of the story. Um a slight mention of a woolly mammoth, saber-toothed tiger, and um, some prehistoric hyenas do kind of come into the mix, but there are no dinosaurs. All right. That's fair. All right. So uh, for the Paleolithic Age, uh, so it kind of spans from about 3.3 million years ago to the Ice Age. Um, So like roughly about 30,000 years ago. 
It's divided into three eras, the lower, middle, and upper. And what we're going to be focusing on is the upper period. Um, and that's the one closest to our time, correct? Yes, that is kind okay. of like the most recent-ish period in that timeline. Um, that's the point that humans became behaviorally and anatomically kind of uh, the most modern. So basically during the upper period, that's when we as humans really started to get our shit together. Um, we were more anatomically and behavioral modern. Uh, we started developing art and religion. And during this time, you know, people are, are roaming in small bands, doing hunting and gathering, uh, and stone and bone tools were used for drilling, engraving. Um, you know, there are spears, there are knives to fight off those not dinosaurs that could eat our early mm. modern humans. Uh, humans, they were spreading out to Australia and Japan, to Siberia and the Americas. And I would just, I really want to see how these people, prehistoric people, got to Australia. Or Japan. Yeah. Like, that right um, there, I could easily spend hours fair. researching. Like, how did we do that? Like, under what circumstances with those those tools did people just be like, well, I'm just going to go out into the ocean and see what I can find. I don't... Boats weren't a thing yet, right? I mean, like, obviously they... Not, <laughs> not not Vikings, no. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, obviously there That's are like boats. A couple. It's just that, I mean, for items like that, along with textiles... Um, they just don't happen to age well when it comes to thousands of years. Oh, out of like wooden stuff. Yeah. So we just, yeah. to my knowledge, there hasn't really been any, uh, you know, recorded discoveries of these ancient, 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 you know, boats. Um, but I mean, I think that's pretty brazen. You know, some human who just fairly recently learned to stand upright was like, I'm going to Australia. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a thing, but I'm going. Wait, how did Paleolithic man make it to Australia? Oh, it sounded like you were going to start, like, a joke. No. <laughs> I'm just Googling. Migration to Australia. I mean, at that point, the sea levels were much lower, and that's how people made it over to the Americas. Um, right. That was pretty much like the last region of exploration, um, and people were able to cross on the Bering Strait because the sea levels were about 500 feet lower than they are now. Um, so, I okay. mean, that's something to take into effect. The climate was totally different, and so because of that, water levels were drastically different from what we know now. Um so, I mean, the whole time while people are making their way out to Japan and Australia and saying sayonaras to their in-laws, um, people were making art. So for Paleolithic art, uh, what remains today that we've discovered is cave art and then small sculptures. So on the sculpture side, okay, it's uh, usually like little figurines made of bone and ivory and some ceramics. Um, they're typically all like under six inches and the most well-known is the venus of willendorf does that sound familiar at all 
I think you mentioned to me a few times. Um, so the Venus of Willendorf is kind of the most iconic example of Stone Age art. Uh, very voluptuous figure, just under five inches tall, um, and kind of a good example of just how much we don't know about the customs of people during that period. Um, whether or not she's like a fertility symbol or self-portrait or a mother goddess, um, it's totally up for speculation. Uh, what is interesting to note is that the area that it was found in, is, there's no local limestone deposits at all. So with these other sculpture figures that have been found, it looks like um, they were just you know, discovered um, within the campsites. And that's kind of unique when compared to slightly similar art um, within ancient Greece. It's like cladic art. And those are also very stylized figures, but those are found exclusively in graves. So those kind of have a whole other kind of boatload of uh, kind of connotations with them okay. that make the uh, the Stone Age sculptures a, l- a little bit more open-ended for what they could mean. Uh, but end of the day, we don't know because it just it's all speculation. Um, and then, so she shows up in an area she's not supposed to be in. Not, I mean, during this period, we're like, we're hunter and gatherers, so kind of roaming around, you know, following animal migrations. Right. So she just obviously was made at a different location and carried with a person. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she could have been like a little, like, good luck symbol. All right. So we've got the small sculptures, and then we've got our cave art. Um, and... That is stylistically pretty much the same, even though um, the art is kind of found all over the globe um, in different surviving caves. Um, A lot of depictions of animals, um, lots of hand silhouettes. Uh, For pigments, it's a lot of really earthy colors, so just materials that were, you know, easily accessible. Um, So red, browns, yellows. Um, those those were used. Um, in some cases, which is pretty neat, it was obvious that scaffolding was created to get to the top of these caves. Oh, yeah. Cool. Um, I like how someone was really insistent about, like, no, guys, I obviously need to paint a giant bull all the way up there. <laughs> that's That's where the best viewing point is, just, like, when you look up. It has to be right yeah. there. Like when you come in and you're in the back of the cave and the way that the light doesn't hit up there, that will be perfect. Uh, I'm, I mean, I presume <laughs> with these torches that they've got or maybe a lot of little candles uh, or maybe someone just, you know, kind of headed over to the local Ikea and got like a few giant bags of those tea lights. Um, I really want to <laughs> oh set the God. mood for the nice ambience of it. Um it's like that's like this was the gallery owner this was the creator and his vision was where nobody could see it some sort of hipster bullshit well i mean to each their own um but yeah so you know scaffolding was huge which is pretty awesome um so in terms of where these you know the art was found it's really it's all over the globe um now, in Spain, in uh, the southeast region, 
kind of near the coast, there is the cave of Naranha, which I might be mispronouncing. Um, and that Naranha? holds the honor of housing possibly the oldest known works of art in human history. And that dates back to about 42,000 years ago, which at that point would make it made by Neanderthals. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, so I mean, from the very beginning, we've been creating art. Um, now, this cave is pretty funny because not only is it this uh, pretty amazing archaeological um, significant site for early human creativity, um, but you can also go there to see a show. It's a concert hall. Wait. Music. Yeah, yeah, like they just recently had the International Festival of Music and Dance there because the acoustics are amazing. Huh. I mean, yeah, I imagine so. But how does that how does that work? Like you go in, you go for a show, but there's like priceless art around you. Like I feel like a bunch of drunken bastards listening to music should not be anywhere near art like that. Yeah, so they've got this museum that you can go to, and you can see uh, reproductions of the cave artwork and also see different artifacts that have been found in it. Um, so that's a great way nice. for visitors, you know, while you're waiting for a concert to start to kind of go in and just, you know, casually check out some of the oldest artwork in the world. Um, that's pretty crazy. So, I mean, in addition... And then, like, you can know the history of the area, too. Like, that's pretty solid. Yeah, so... The, the caves, they were shelter to early humans. Um, also, random enough, roaming hyenas. Because why not? Um, <laughs> why and, not? Were they, wait, so like the humans lived with the hyenas? You know, I like to think they kind of had like a timeshare set up with that. <laughs> that they were like, you know, at this point we're going to be roaming, uh, you know, northern Spain if by the time we migrate south, if you guys could just not be there, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if you could just, like, clean up all the beer cans, because last time we just really did not appreciate how you left it, you party animals. <laughs> um, so that's I like to imagine that, a timeshare setting with these early humans from 30,000 years ago and hyenas. Um, but so since then, it was also used for farming and pottery production, also a burial chamber, um, and currently, like I said, a, a concert hall. Um, so I mean, we've been we've been getting use out of it for quite a while now. But so while this cave in Spain uh, holds possibly the oldest art in the world, um, there was just recently a discovery made in Borneo about potentially the oldest figurative art in the world um and that's in a eastern region of borneo um and that's pretty unique because with a lot of this cave art it's a lot of animals and handprints and not so much depictions of humans and so this particular example is pretty unique in that it has this um obviously pretty abstract uh renditions of humans and so and this was just within the last week or so so this has been kind of a, a big deal um, they're, I, again, they're pretty abstract. Um, a lot of this figurative cave art from this period, what little there is, um, kind of looks like I was, what I was drawing in kindergarten. 
They're stick figures. They're stick. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Not gonna lie, stick figures. Yeah. <laughs> Which, fun random fact, um, in kindergarten we had to draw our families, and the teacher was very adamant about no one drawing stick figures. Ha- okay. Yeah. You're in kindergarten. What did? How did you do it? I sat, like, stunned for way too long. It might have been five minutes. It felt like 30 minutes. In reality, it was probably, like, maybe two minutes. Because at the time, little, like, four-year-old Megan, that's the only thing I knew how to draw. That was the, You've come that was a long the only way. way I knew how to draw my family. Um, and here was this <laughs> teacher saying, no one can draw stick figures. And little me is like, what am I going to do? This is horrible. Until... I glanced over at my neighbor and saw what she was doing. She was not drawing stick figures because her figures had a circle body, not a stick body. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> you made a circle I made body. A, an oval, technically an oval body with a circle head and some stick hands and legs. And that was the first major artistic innovation in my life. In kindergarten. Oh, my. <laughs> no, I remember the fear and panic of, like, and being stunned of not knowing what to do when this teacher had the audacity to say to me, you can't draw a stick figure. Well, you know what she did, Megan? What she? She, she forced you to, like, think outside that. Yeah, and to. And, like, you can, you can go back and thank her because you're always pushing yourself farther no if anything and everything i need to thank that neighbor that i totally copied off of uh oh that's true because otherwise do you remember her name i don't know i was in kindergarten (laughs) i don't even remember the teacher's name that's right i don't remember kindergarten um but so yeah so they're stick figures uh but still still pretty cool. cool um and the, the team, just as a fun fact to get there, so they had to travel upriver by boat into the rainforest, and then they had to backpack into the mountains for days, um, and they had to hack their way through with machetes to get to these caves. Oh. Yeah. And That sounds like a yeah. fun time. Um, and I mean, that actually kind of is a, a good segue into this. Um, so for the casual research of just looking into this... Um, a lot of what I found happens to be within the, you know, kind of France and Spain. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more on some of the contributions of, uh, of cave art from France. I think, so there's cave art found all over the world, but a good bit of it, I think, is just Western scientists and explorers kind of finding what they're looking for in their own backyard. So, I mean, who's to say how many more caves undiscovered in Borneo that there are um, that we just we don't hear yeah. a lot about, you know, that kind of uh, cave art from Africa and from Australia um, uh, because there just hasn't been that kind of a, uh, the same re- level of attention and uh, kind of resources given to it. Now, for some of the most well-known Western Cave art. We are going to an area of uh, France and Spain known as the Franco-Cantabrian School. Uh, And that is a regional collection of about 200 limestone caves. uh, The most prominent of which is the La Croix Grotto, 
which was discovered in <laughs> 1940. I, you do not sound amused by my French attempt at <laughs> Les Croix no, Plateau. I just, I'm thinking about the water, the seltzer water. <laughs> I, too, was concerned. I might bad? accidentally say La Croix instead of <laughs> Les Croix. <laughs> my apologies. Um, <laughs> I did I just imagine there just being giant banners, like, advertising the seltzer water. And, like, that's how they keep the caves, like, preserved. Not with the seltzer water, because that would just take everything off the surface. No. Like, that would clean that no, sucker. No, no, no. Not, not with the seltzer water, but with the ads in the caves. This cave art brought to you the- by La Croix. <laughs> La Croix. Is it, is it Sorry, continue. Is it blackberry? Who knows? <laughs> it's grapefruit. Um, or so they say. I fucking hate that stuff. I really do. Just drink water. Yeah. Just drink, drink, drink regular water. water. I have two cases in my pantry right now. Don't judge me. You drink seltzer water? I drink warm seltzer water because that's how I like it. Oh, that's disgusting. Just drink regular yes, water. Bubbly water. We are we are fortunate enough to live in a society where we have clean water at the tips of our fingers. Unless you're in Michigan. Yeah, I was about to say it is not an equal playing field in this great nation of ours. Um Alright, so for this particular cave, the Scrato, in nineteen forty. Uh it was discovered by four teenage boys and basically when they told everyone else about it. Um, everyone collectively was like bullshit because it was in such good condition. Um, yeah, That's for quite weird. a bit, it it was disputed as to whether or not it was uh, like a hoax. Um, again, because it was so well preserved, and it wasn't until almost forty years later in nineteen seventy nine that it was designated a a world heritage site. Um, and since then, a partial partial recreation has been made. Um, just because with all the tourism, it, it was really starting to uh, um, kind of destroy the artwork there. Now, within the cave, oh, no. there's about 600 animal and symbol paintings um, and about 1,500 engravings. And some of the most like stunning artwork is these four huge paintings of these ancient oxens that are about 16 feet long. So I know that's not like a 16 meter giant ancient dolphin, but that's still pretty big. <laughs> it's pretty uh, fucking big. And yeah. with all the artwork in there, because there's a few chambers that the artwork is spread throughout, um, it's kind of theorized that the art was created over a few centuries, uh, which again is also theorized for the most recent discovery of the caves in Borneo. Um, hmm. So while this cave. It offers the best example in European ancient animal imagery. Uh, in the French Pyrenees, there's a cave in Gorgas that offers the best example in hand silhouettes. Um, there's about 230 of them. And what's kind of weird about them is that out of these handprints, they're missing some fingers. Wait. Okay. Uh, like a lot of them are missing fingers? They're, like, pretty consistently across the board, they're missing the last two fingers of their handprints. 
What? How do they lose their fingers? Well, because these are hand silhouettes, so, uh, you know, the paint was kind of splattered around their hands, people kind of theorized that they could have just, like, bent their fingers in while they were doing that. See, that's... That's not as exciting as losing your fingers to, like, a saber-toothed tiger. It also, there could be some weird ritual thing where people, like, were losing their finger. You know, it's like some weird hazing, right, a passage. Um, that's just, like, that's infection. Kind of thing. Um, just screams infection. Yeah, maybe they, you know, had a disagreement with a hyena. You know, they thought they worked out. They were going to obviously come two weeks early. But then, you know, obviously things were miscommunicated. Um, there is beer everywhere. Kind of, you know, kind of lost a few fingers in that rumble. Um, they hadn't cleaned the bathroom in three weeks. Yeah. God, that'd be so gross. Um, so, yeah. So we've got all these handprints, a few missing fingers, and a bunch of speculation just like the meaning of those little, uh, you know, Stone Age sculptures as to what they mean. Ultimately, we don't know because it was so long ago. There's no written record. Um, so it'll just be a matter up to speculation until the end of time. Um, it's just a guessing game. Um, now, as a whole, all this cave art from, like, the hand silhouettes to these giant paintings of oxens, um, to these little sculptures of figures, um, everyone kind of dismissed them, especially in the Middle Ages. Kind of like, yeah, no big deal. Um, you know, we've got mention of them all the way back in the Renaissance, and uh, basically people just thought they were graffiti. Like, right, because when you look at, you know, the artwork that they had at that time period, like, this was just... It was nothing remarkable. Oh, God, no. No. I mean, when you've got works by, like, yeah. Michelangelo and Raphael and Donatello, like, they did not give two yeah. shits for some scribbled stick figures <laughs> in a cave in France. Where's the definition? Where's the like, shadow? Did not care at all. Um, and so it's really interesting because it's not really until the 19th century, you know, when Mary Anning was out there hustling on the, the coastline, um, that they really started to kind of become appreciated and kind of getting a little bit more attention. Um, and so in part, this is because of the art movements kind of coming in during this period. So we've got like post-impressionism, expressionism, and primitism. Um and so the style of the cave paintings, so how abstract they are, how simplistic the drawings are, um, you know, the non-representational color, that kind of started coinciding with the current art style of the time. Kind of, you know, these emerging areas of modern art. Huh. Um, all right. So from the shifting kind of like artistic landscape um, where things were kind of stylistically getting a more abstract... Um, Paul Gauguin, he's a French post-impressionistic painter. He kind of offers a good example of um, kind of the shifting attitudes within European artists. So they took things like cave art, cave art, and essentially anything like non-white, and really took it as like a source of inspiration. And so what mm. he did, he went to the French colonies um, for about ten years and really used that as 
like source material to paint something you know different um and what was different was essentially just like a non-white culture um and in part women who walked around topless because given the culture that was kind of okay oh oh sure (laughs) why not pick that part of the culture how convenient so within his work, it kind of uh, gives an example of this, like, shifting status quo within Western art. Um, I mean, you go from, like, the highly structured fine art of the Renaissance um, to things that are a little bit more emotive and definitely have a different quality for, like, the visuals of them and, like, the colors. Um, the colors become, like, non-representational. Um, you know, there's definitely a different line work going on. Um kind of falling back more in sync with this very you know primitive art of of the the cave paintings um and so from some artists of the period uh picasso is probably the most well known to be inspired by them um right you know resso paul clean um yeah and, and a handful of other names uh, kind of cited these cave art as inspiration for for their work um now with the discovery of the caves like La Croix Grotto. Uh, there's been decades. <laughs> don't judge me. Um, Sorry, there's a what? There have been decades of uh, scientific examination and research, you know, all to better understand our early ancestors and what they were making. Um, you know, carbon dating, archaeology digs, examination of the cave sites, mm-hmm. the artifacts, the skeletons, right. uh, discussions of the symbol, discussions of the meanings of. Um, you know, the sculptures found, uh, there were also some, um, like geometric symbols included with the, the figurative and the animal art that we're not really sure what that could be. Um, the possible spiritual and religious implication of the artworks. And this is all while assuming that all the creators were men. Oh, sure. Cause 50% of the population doesn't have vaginas it's all penises all and they're the only ones who make art um so this is where you're kind of going to get into uh you know how this is relevant to what we're doing here um so in 2013 dean snow a archaeologist with the pennsylvania state university he essentially it was like yeah i don't think so so what Hmm. he did was examine hand sizes in a sampling of caves uh, within France and Spain, and he concluded that three-fourths of the hand silhouettes, so like the ones that are missing fingers, um, they were female. Three-fourths? Yeah, three-fourths. Uh, That's a solid amount. Yeah, not like, you know, 50-50, maybe not like like one-third. Like, a good chunk of them were most likely from, you know, the the research and comparisons that he did, most likely female. Uh, well, Yeah, shit. so naturally... There were skeptics. Um, uh, there's one evolutionary biologist in particular who, um, you know, proposed that potentially could have been like teenage boys doing it. Uh, but within the community, Snow's work, it, it's supported and it's been called by others a landmark contribution. Um, you know, Snow said himself, there has been a, a male bias in the literature for a long time. This particular example of Stone Age handprints and the recent scientific research, it really underscores the systematic imbalance of female representation um, and the often overlooked and denied contributions to not only the arts, but I mean, really to, to human 
progress as a whole. Okay, so that's still a thing now, is what you're telling me. Uh, what, the systematic gender and bias in life? I mean, I mean, in life, yes, but I was talking about art. Oh, yeah, for sure, because we're about to get some really depressing statistics, so hold on to your hat. Oh, dear. Um, okay. So how this ties in with the fine arts world today. Um, so just like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, um, the contribution that women made in this cave art was dismissed. Um, unfortunately, today, women's contribution to the arts are still being dismissed. So 51% of artists working today are women. Um, up to 75% of students and MFA programs are women. And yeah, women make up a fraction of gallery representation, about 25 to 35%. Uh, yeah. We only make up about 5% of work displayed in museum collections. Seriously? Yep. Only about 3 to 5% of permanent work in museum collections. Good news, though. Um, so we're up 9% in being included in art history textbooks. 9%. 9%. Yeah. Fun Whoa, facts. hold on to your hats, guys. In Jansen's history of Western art, um, there were zero in 1986. Oh so we're doing good. We're good. We're getting in there. Okay. 9% from 1986. That's it's okay. something. <laughs> um, let's see. So in terms of solo exhibitions, usually only about 27% women. Um um, so on top of that all, women only make approximately 81 cents to every dollar a male artist makes. Um, and mm. that can contribute to a difference, a disparity of uh, about $20,000 in income between men and women artists. And, I mean, that just might be for white women artists for that 81 cents. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, but the <laughs> most depressing fact that I came across uh, was that out of – the top 100 living artists for their individual artwork sold between 2011 and 2012, only two were from women. So we've got... I'm sorry, two out of 100. how many? 100. Two women out of 100 top living individual artworks. Yeah, oh. so there is one work from Jenny Seville. She's a British portrait painter. And Cindy Sherman. She's an American photographer and filmmaker. Yes, I do love Cindy Sherman. Um, yeah, so what's even more wild is that out of those 100 individual artworks, five male artists made 75 of those pieces. What? Yeah. Why? Why? It's just like this big, great, jerk off to themselves i mean like today like we still have poor representation um and you know higher levels of the art world um which sucks because like women were being dismissed you know hundreds of thousands of years ago and it's it's still the case today um that there's that that uh, gender discrepancy unfortunately it's yeah unreal. so i mean as you'll be unsurprised to learn, uh, this imbalance is not unique to the art world. Um, oh, no. Yeah. I, I mean, just thinking about the magnitude of kind of these ingrained biases um, can 
really be depressing as fuck. But I think in part knowing how skewed these numbers are um, and kind of being able to put things in context is like a good starting point of going forward and asking like, why is it like this? Like, and that's why I like the opportunity for us to do this is because I've gotten to look into some amazing artists so far and we're just starting this. Um, and I think right. I've easily got over 50, you know, feminist artists that I just, for the most part, the majority of them, I, I wasn't familiar with. I had no idea who they are or who they were. Yeah. I know that's what this, that's exactly what this is about. Like learning and growing ourselves and then being able to like educate as well. Well, if you have made it this far, God bless you, because this is the first episode, and it's only slightly awkward. Um, so, it's <laughs> if you've liked what you've heard, um, feel free to go and do the spiel and, you know, give us those good reviews, because we definitely appreciate it for our little little budding baby of a podcast. It felt like it took nine months to get it out, that's for oh, sure. Oh, definitely. It's been a labor of love. All right, so a quick shout-out to our friend Travis Southard, who helped us with uh, with audio stuff. So you can check him out, facebook.com slash Travis Southard video. Uh, so that's S-O-U-T-H-A-R-D as his last name. Um, or his YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Eugene Umbrella Studio. He does his own content, usually bike-based in the Philly area, so give him a, a shout-out. After that, you can find us at... Uh, on Facebook and Instagram as uh, My Favorite Feminist. They're both under that name. You can also email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com and you can find our website at myfavoritefeminist.com. Um, please rate, subscribe, do whatever you need to do in those comments section. Just give us some love and also let us know if you could see our great justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg punch anybody in the face. Uh, who would it be? And that does not include Trump or Pence because that's the obvious choice. So just let us know. Give us some love and we'll see you next time. All right. Until then. Thanks, guys. Come on, party. Come on, Come on, Come on, Come on,